Well, good morning again. It's uh, good to see so many people just enjoying the fellowship that God has given us through brothers and sisters in Christ. We are going to talk this morning about which priest are you. Before we do, I just want to kind of give you an update and a thank you for um, all the support uh, for the museum and uh, uh, the man powers. We have had uh, well over 480 man hours that have been put into that just at the fair and uh, many of you people here have volunteered and we're just so grateful I could never have done it without you. So far, as of last night, we've had 5,194 people who have gone through it. We expect to have over 6,000 for sure. So, yeah. Um, God has uh, shown us a lot of neat things and how he's working. We had one man come down the stairs and you can kind of see he was pondering. And, and I asked him, so what would you think? And he said, I think I've been wrong. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, my wife goes to church. He says, I don't. And I always thought she was kind of crazy, but I may need to rethink that. And so that's just one of many examples that I could give you of what we're hearing, uh, just as well as just the encouragement uh, that we get from people enjoying it and whatnot. So um, thank you for your prayers and your support. And if you haven't gotten to see it, if you would like, we're still there a couple of days yet. So um, just a thank you for that. Um, but today I want to really uh, just kind of focus on this message here today. And I, I want you to know that uh, Sean and I didn't even confer as far as what I was really talking about. So uh, even some of the things he's been saying, and you just see how the Holy Spirit is working and bringing uh, this message in line with what he was just sharing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, are grateful to be here today, to be able to worship you, to be able to learn more of you, because the more we know you, the more we love you. And so I just pray that we would leave here loving you even more, just knowing more about you, who you are, your word, and uh, that you would just, uh, just be present here today, that my words would be your words and nothing more, and that we would be challenged and encouraged leaving here today knowing that you are God and that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the reason I call this, which priest are you, is because there is a certain time in history where there were two priests, and I'm going to show that to you, but a lot of times this has gone unnoticed. Um, there are two priesthoods that were going on at the time of David, two lines of priests, and uh, this is not a, a new message that God has given me. I've heard David Wilkerson years ago talk about this. The Benham brothers have talked about it. But it, it's something that is one of those hidden nuggets in Scripture that you, you often miss because it's separated by a number of years of history. Um, and before we really get into the details of it, I want you to understand this in Ezekiel 22, verse 26. It says this, Her priests have done violence to my law, have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. The part that I want you to see is this, just because someone is a priest doesn't mean they're godly. It doesn't mean that they're doing what God wants them to do. And we see that here, that the priests, the people who were supposed to be God's people, have done violence to his law. They, they have neglected his word. They've made their own law. You know, we see that with the Antichrist. He's going to be a man of lawlessness, right? We often think of that as, as maybe just kind of uh, disassociate it from us and say, well, man of lawlessness, you know, he's just going to be an outright evil person. Not necessarily. But he's going to do violence to God's law. He's going to neglect God's word is what he's going to do. You see, there are false teachers among us. The Bible warns us that. It says, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. 
We even see here in 2 Timothy, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. There are false teachers that are among us. The Bible warns it would happen. The Bible tells us that in the end times, it is the church that is going to become apostate. It is the church that we should be able to rely on. We should be able to trust that what they tell us is truth. But it's often not the case. I remember when we were evangelizing outside at, at Kearney, one time there was a lady that came up to us. And she, we would see her week after week or many times. And she came up and she said, my father committed suicide this week. And I came to you because I knew you would tell us the truth. Even she could tell that she couldn't really trust what she was hearing from other so-called Christians because there's so much compromise out there. You see, Sean was mentioning this, that we are priests today. Today we are all priests. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a priest. It says in 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men... But in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want you to know you too are going to be rejected by men if you are going to be a priest that will distinguish between the clean and the unclean, the common and the uncommon or the unholy. You will be rejected by men. And you know, as a priest, it says this as well in Revelation 1.6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God. As priests, we serve in the temple of God. Not only that, but you are the temple of God. Look what it says here. We see that the purpose of the temple of God, you know, I always think, well, that's where we would come and we would make sacrifices to, you know, to offer to God and things like that, what the priests would do in the Old Testament, right? When we talk about the temple, that's all we think about. However, the Bible tells us there was another purpose to that temple. It was to bring shame to the people. Look at this. It says in Ezekiel 43, As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities or sins. One of the purposes was you're supposed to describe this temple of God to them so that you would be embarrassed of your sin, ashamed of it. If you are the temple of God, you know what that means? The very presence, when you are in the presence of ungodliness, they're going to hate you because they're going to feel shame because they see your holiness. When you come into the presence of God, it makes you... What's the first thing that happened when people would come into God's presence or an angel of the Lord would appear? What do they do? Boom. Fall. They're unworthy. When you are in the presence of that holiness, sin and unholiness cannot be in that presence. And therefore, when we are with the world today, your very presence will bring shame to the world. That's why you're hated. That's why Christianity is hated. Because deep down, their conscience is being pricked. They know that there's something not right within themselves. And you're just a reminder of that to them. It goes on and it says that they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, exits, entrances, its whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws. And write it down. In other words, if they repent... Then you go ahead and make known to them the entire design, the whole blessing that comes from the temple of God. Does your temple bring shame to people? When you go out in the world 
your presence among the ungodly, do they still feel welcome and okay? Or does it bring shame to them? I'll tell you something, we're living in a world that is really getting topsy-turvy. Homosexuality, transgender, all of these ideas. And I see many people in the church just saying, oh, it's okay, we love you anyway. Are you bringing shame to those people? Now don't get me wrong, I love those people. But we must not ever give the impression that sin is acceptable. Look at this. He says, but to the Levites who went far from me, going astray. Keep in mind, Levites are priests again. Going astray from me after their idols when Israel went astray shall bear their punishment. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. They shall slaughter the burnt offering, the sacrifice for the people. They shall stand before the people to minister to them. Here's what I want you to see. These priests who were serving in the temple of God shall be ministers in my sanctuary. Who are they going to stand before? The people. And they're going to minister to them. There is a lot of shepherds out there in churches today ministering to people. Let me tell you something, they're not standing before God's presence. They're in His sanctuary, they are ministering to the people, but they're not experiencing the presence of God. Look what it says, because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord, they shall bear their punishment. And it goes on. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things and all the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and the abominations that they have committed. Yet I will appoint to them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. God hasn't rejected them, but he's saying this. You're not going to come near me. You're going to serve the people and you're going to take care of the temple. You're going to do the labor work. It goes on, but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok. Now remember, we were talking already about Levite priests here. But now we've got a certain line of priests. The priest of Zadok. Who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray. Those that stood up for God when the rest of the priests were saying, it's okay to accept this sin, it's okay to tolerate this. These guys were saying, no it's not, I don't care what the people think of me, I am going to stand for God. Those people, he says, they shall come near to me to minister to me. They shall stand before me. They're not going to stand before the people, they stand before God. And that's the question I want to ask you. Are you going to stand before God in a, represent, a, representative, a representative of Him? Or are you a representative of the people? Which one are you? As we go on here, I want to give you some history of how all of this happened. We see the historical event here of Samuel. When Samuel was a boy, he was growing up in the temple. And you might remember one night that uh, the Lord called him. And uh, he runs into Eli, the priest, and says, Yes, I'm here. What do you want? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So Eli, or Samuel goes back to bed and pretty soon he, see, he hears Samuel, Samuel. So he gets up, he goes and asks Eli, what do you want? He says, I didn't call you. And Eli finally gets it and he says, ah, oh, God must be talking to Samuel. So he goes home, or goes back to bed, and as instructed by Eli, Samuel says this time, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. And God speaks to Samuel. And the message is really quite sad. What God tells Samuel is this, I declared to him, that, to Eli, that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. 
Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. You know, Eli, what happens is you read a couple of chapters before this and you see that his sons were sleeping with women at the tent of meeting. They were being sexually immoral. And Eli goes to them and says, hey, this is a bad report that I'm hearing about you. You need to stop. And then life goes on. Scripture goes on. And then two chapters later we hear this. And God goes on in this passage. If you look further, he says, because Eli considered his sons more holy than me, this is what I'm going to do. And I remember reading that thinking, man, Eli, he told his sons to stop. But that's all he did. He told them to stop, and then what did he do? He tolerated it. He accepted it. Oh well, I did my job, I told them no more. And his sons didn't stop, and God says, because you didn't consider me more holy than your sons. Today I see so many people compromising and, and trying to be, you know, getting confused about this idea of transgender and homosexuality because a loved one is a homosexual. Uh-uh. That's the same thing that Eli did. You see, Eli was in a place of comfort. You're going to see later that Eli was a fat man. Okay, he was a lazy man. Now, he also sits in the temple of God. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but do you know that there was no chair in the temple? But Eli sits, telling us that he was a lazy glutton. There's no reason, why would scripture, scripture doesn't tell us about every fat man in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that's not there for a reason. It's trying to tell us something about Eli here. That his place of comfort is going to later become his place of death. You'll see that coming up. Because he sat at the temple. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 21, He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. I want to remind you guys of something. Do you know God didn't put you here on earth to go to every movie that you can find and go to every state fair and every, every great event and concert and find the next fun thing to do? He put you here on earth with a purpose and a job to be a priest for Him, to minister before Him. But I'll tell you something, our society is so pleasure-mad that someday your place of comfort might become your place of death. Because we're always worried about what we get out of it. Church, church has become that. What do we get out of it? Well, I don't like this church because, you know, I like coffee and they don't have the best coffee. I like this church because they've got a really good speaker. Or I like this church because they've got this or that because that's what I want. You see, if God's word is being preached, that's what you should want. What you win them with is what you win them to. You win somebody to this church because of the great coffee we have, what happens when Tiffany leaves? I guess we're in trouble, right? Not to say Tammy can't make good coffee and stuff too and the rest of them working there. Right? You see, but if we win them with the word of God and the teaching of truth and standing up and loving people enough to keep them from going astray, then they're going to stick around no, no matter what, as long as the word is being preached. Our place of comfort. You see, Eli was not a father, folks. He wasn't a father. What I mean by that is this. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. Can you see the difference? Today there are many pastors in most churches throughout our country, regardless of the denomination, who are unwilling to hit those hard topics. We won't talk about homosexuality and how that is sin, period. 
We won't talk about abortion because there are people in our congregations who have had abortions. We're not going to talk about these hot topics because it means that the people might rebel against us. But if I'm going to stand up for truth and for God and truly stand up for the people, then I'll be honest with them to love them. What kind of father would I be if I never disciplined my children? I'd be a terrible father, wouldn't I? And what kind of priest will we be if we don't in loving discipline, discipline the people and keep them from going astray? There are many things that I tell my children not to do because I know that what, that, what they're wanting to do is going to affect them down the road. That it's, it's going to have later consequences. And so I tell them, no. It's no different here. That we need to encourage one another to rebuke. What does the Bible say in 2 Timothy 3? All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It isn't just about, oh, Jesus loves you. Sometimes it's, stop. You're going down a wrong path. There will be consequences. Do you want to minister before the Lord? Do you want to receive God's presence? Do you want to minister in His presence? You see, a father disciplines. A father hits those hot topics. A guide, whatever you want. We just don't want to offend you. We have countless guides in Christ, but very few fathers today in the church. And that's the problem. But look what happens here in 1 Samuel 2. God tells Samuel this. After he says, I'm going to reject Eli because he considered the people more holy than me. He says, I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will bind him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. God is giving a prophecy here. He says, I'm going to remove the priest of Eli and I am going to raise up another priest, a sure house who will be, go in and out before my anointed forever. He's basically saying there's another priest coming. Now I want you to see something here because in the time of David there are now two priests. This is the only time in scripture that I've ever seen this that there are two priests at the same time. Two high priests at the same time. It's when David is king and his son Absalom tries to take over the kingdom. Now what Absalom did, by the way, is he got the support of the people. He didn't offend anybody. And so it says this, when David is fleeing from Absalom, he's running away from Jerusalem, and it says that Abiathar, one of the high priests, came up, and behold, Zadok, the other high priest, came also with him. So as David flees, you have two high priests that are in support of David, the king, going with him. All right? Now that's kind of important because um, David is also a Christ figure here. So kind of just keep that in mind as we go. Now it goes on and it says that David uh, says that, you know, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he's going to bring me back to Jerusalem here. Let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what, he, what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons. Okay, and they go back. See, I will wait for the, at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. So we're seeing here that they have the support of the people, or of David the king. And they're giving him the support. So they're working together. But what I want you to notice, Zadok, 
The Bible tells us he was a valiant warrior. From the line of Samuel. Remember, Samuel becomes a priest. And so Zadok is coming from him. Abiathar is a direct descendant of Eli. So when Eli is, you know, being an ungodly, unholy priest, Samuel is saying, all right, right now we've got Samuel and Eli together, but God says, I'm going to remove Sam, or Eli, and I'm going to raise up another one. And so those two lines are there, and the Bible tells us we still have them together here at the time of David. Well, we see what happens. I'm not going to go through the story, but Absalom is killed, and David returns back to Jerusalem, and those two priests remain. But it's not long again in another one of David's sons, Adonijah. He tries and goes and gets the, the support of the people again. Same thing that Absalom did. He always goes and he, he literally just kind of kisses up to the people so that the people love him. But what's going on in David's life is, is at this time is David's getting to be an old man. He's no longer culturally relevant. And Solomon is supposed to be king, but Adonijah, well, he thinks, well, my dad's so old, and I don't want Solomon to be king, so I'm going to take it instead. So he's kind of a rock star. The Bible says he's handsome. He always goes and kisses up to the people, so everybody loves him. He's the up-and-coming, culturally relevant rock star. Well, he even goes and he prepares people to go, you know, before him in this chariot and 50 men to run before him, making it just, you know, a lot of show is involved in this. He confers with Joab, the son of Zariah, the uh, commander of the army, and Abiathar, the priest. And Abiathar supports Adonijah. Because Abiathar was looking out for himself. What do I get out of this? Because you see, the guy I'm serving now is getting old. He's culturally irrelevant. He's no longer in touch with what's going on. But this guy, people love him. If I follow him, I've probably got a future. If I follow him, who knows what's going to happen? You see, Abiathar had his own platform that he was concerned about. He wanted to make sure that he was going to be okay. David never treated him poorly. David didn't do anything wrong. David's just no longer culturally relevant. And so, Zadok, however, does not follow Adonijah. Zadok remains with David. And so here we see something a big turn taking place here in history. Zadok didn't care about building his own thing, but Abiathar did. What's your platform? What are you concerned about? When you go out to be a priest for God, are you going to remain faithful even when God becomes culturally irrelevant? Are you going to be, remain faithful even though Maybe it means that people aren't going to follow you anymore. That they're going to mock you. That when you are in their presence, they feel shame, so they don't want to be around you. Or they think you're too holy, you know, you think you're holier than thou, or you're too arrogant, or whatever the case might be. Or are you going to follow the next rock star that comes along as culture continues to change? I don't know, a week or two ago, I saw along Hastings, all these people holding up signs in support of homosexuality, tolerance, and all of those kind of things. Guys, I'm the most intolerant person you're going to meet. You know why? Because Jesus was. Yes, I'm intolerant. Because I love people, and I will not tolerate sin. I'll tell you what, I'll welcome them. I will love them. But I will not tolerate their sin, and I certainly am not going to pave the road to hell by telling them that it's okay. 
not going to be popular. Many of you sitting here today might even not like what I'm saying because, well, you've got friends. You've got people. But you don't have Scripture. You don't have Scripture on your side. Look at this. What ends up happening is... King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son. They came before the king. This is what happens to, just a little backstory here. Adonijah, they catch on to the plot. Solomon becomes king. And so he calls, David calls the, these priests together. And Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, there they anointed Solomon king. And then what happens? Well, all the, by the way, the culture was following the new rock star coming up. Okay? Then what happens is this. Zadok took the priest, uh, took the, uh, the, the priest, took the horn of oil from the tent. He anointed Solomon. They blew the trumpet and they said, long live the king. So like I said, the culture was following Abiathar. Zadok chose to be with David anyway. And they anoint God, or uh, Solomon, as God's choice of of a king, which by the way, it was God's choice because God told David, your son will be king. And so it was God's word that said Solomon was to be king. It didn't matter what the culture thought. Well, he goes on, I'm not going to read it all just to save some time here, but it says, and to Abiathar, the priest that didn't follow David and went along with the rock star, he said, go to Anathoth to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not do this at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Years earlier, when God spoke to Samuel as a child, this is what he had prophesied. It took years, but it was fulfilled just as God had said. I got news for you. God has given us many prophecies about his return. He talks about in Ezekiel, these priests who will serve him, and then those priests that will serve the people. It may seem like it's taking a long time, but I'm telling you something, that will be fulfilled. You see, we're focusing so much when we read on this story about the kingship. Hey, Solomon's now king. Okay? Ab uh, Adonijah, he didn't get to be king. I think that there's, that's just, that's kind of a side story to this. The real story is the priesthood. The whole point in this story being recorded isn't about his son rebelling. It's about fulfilling God's promise and a change of priesthood. You know what? Sometimes that happens with us. We're always focused on the pastor. What's Sean doing wrong? What's Pastor Brett doing wrong? Okay? Yeah, they're no longer culturally relevant. They're not relevant for me. They're not doing what I want. But what about us? What are you doing? What are we doing to support King David? King David made some mistakes, didn't he? He killed Uriah. He was a womanizer. But you know what? These priests stood behind him. Nathan the prophet and others came and, and rebuked him at times. But they stood with King David because that was the Lord's anointed. We can't always look at what the pastor is doing, we have to look at ourselves and say, which priest are you? Because the Bible says you are now priests. And who are you going to serve? The people? Or King Jesus? Solomon didn't put Abiathar to, de to death. And I believe that, that spirit of Abiathar is still alive today. In the priesthood of God. Where we have so many people today in the churches who are not making a clear distinction between right and wrong. 
You remember what Ezekiel said back in chapter 44? But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, the guy that followed David, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me, minister to me. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. I want to be a priest of Zadok. I want to be one who will stand before you no matter what culture is saying and tell you homosexuality is wrong. Abortion is murder. Islam is a lie. And Jesus loves them all. We need to be giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ and letting them know there is no sin that He cannot and has not covered if they are willing to repent of their sins. To distinguish between clean and unclean. Well, I've got a video here. Well, let me show you this here. And he said to them, this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. And the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok who um, alone, among the sons of Levi, may come near to the Lord to minister to Him. Guys, if you're going to be a priesthood of Zadok, that's how you're going to be able to experience the presence of God. You're going to minister before the Lord. Now keep in mind, I want you to understand something here. Remember what Ezekiel said, both priests served in the temple. I believe that many of these people who are supporting the homosexuals, I believe many of them are still believers in Jesus Christ and I'll be with them in heaven. Because they know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, but they have been led astray by culture and by other priests. But I also believe that they are missing out on a lot of blessings because they are only going to serve before the people, whatever that means spiritually. Here though, the priests of Zadok, they will minister before God. I want to show you some examples of what I think can be priests of Abiathar. Godly men, people who I believe I will be in heaven with, but who have chosen to follow the rock stars of today, who have chosen to be culturally relevant rather than biblically sound. Pat Robertson, I think I've shown you a couple of these clips before, but just watch what he uh, You have to be deaf, dumb, and blind to think that this earth that we live in only has 6,000 years of existence. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I've got some interest in oil, and you're, you're now drilling in the Jurassic uh, uh, zone uh, 65 million years ago when those dinosaurs were here. They were, they were uh, rotting in the earth and making oil. And uh, there's no question about it. There's no question that there were dinosaurs, and no question that radiocarbon dating, there were 65 million. There's no question that some of the other things were much older than that, and we have so many geological records. Now, the question is, if you look at a day, day one, day two, day three, what is a day? Well, a day is how long it takes the Earth to revolve on its axis. But what about a solar day? Well, that would be how long it would take the sun to uh, travel around uh, the galaxy we're in. Well, what about a uh, galactic day? That could be how long it takes a galaxy to transverse the universe. And so now you're talking about billions of years. You don't know how long it is. So day one, day two, and day three, uh, it's all accommodated if you look at it that way. But the idea is that you first have Adam, and then you've got a billion years, and then you get Noah or something. That's nonsense. I, I think what we're looking at is that there was a point of time after the earth was created, after these things were done, after the universe was formed, after the uh, asteroid hit the earth and wiped out the dinosaurs, after all that, there was a point of time that there's a particular human being that God touched. And that was the human that started the race that we are now part of. And I think prior to that, who knows what was here. 
but I, I, we haven't worked all the wrinkles out, but I think to deny the clear record that's there before us makes us look silly. And you got the old earth, new earth. There's no way that all this that you have here took place in 6,000 years. It just couldn't have been done. It couldn't possibly have been done. I'm going to just leave it at that for now. But you've got to be deaf, dumb, and blind to believe what God's Word says. In essence, I believe that's what he's saying. He's saying, because I mean, now by the way, how many scripture verses did he use there? None. Not a one. But he goes on to use human reasoning and interpretations of science. I mean, you've got to believe it because dinosaurs are way down in the Jurassic area. Yeah, you know how they got there? Noah's flood. The Bible talks about Noah's flood. Okay, and what's a day? We don't, well, I think the Bible told me what a day was. You got a galactic day? No, I, I don't recall the Bible talking about a galactic day. And it doesn't matter. A day is a day because if you have the earth rotating on its axis, a light, you get a 24-hour day. You see, the laws of nature are still there. By, so by applying the laws of nature, I can tell you what a day is. And we see what the day is in Scripture. Now, people will take that out of context sometimes and say, well, look over here, a day can mean a long period. Yeah, it can over there. But in the context here, it doesn't mean that. Ken Ham is famous for saying, "Back in my father's day, it took 24 hours to. Uh, it, back in my father's day, it took 10 days to cross the Australian outback during the day." Now, do I need to give you guys a dictionary to understand what he was saying there? To understand what the word "day" means? No, context tells you, doesn't it? And likewise, the context of Scripture will tell us. But you see, we're not going to Scripture, and as I said before, we're allowing science or rather interpretations of science, to interpret Scripture. Well then, I have to get rid of the virgin birth, I have to get rid of Jesus walking on water, I have to get rid of a lot of different things in Scripture. Certainly, he didn't rise from the dead or heal a man's ear after Peter cut it off. Those are all scientifically impossible. No, you see, I don't let science interpret Scripture because my God is the creator and author of all science and all laws, and he's not bound by them. How about John Piper? Look what John Piper says. He's preparing the land and causing things to grow and separating out water and earth, and then when it's all set and prepared, he creates and puts man there. And so that, that has the advantage of saying that the earth is, is billions of years old if it wants to be, Whatever science says it is, it is. Uh, but uh, man is young, and he was good, and he sinned, and uh, he was a real historical person because Romans 5 says so, and, and so did the rest of the, the Bible. So that, that's, the, that's where I am, but I, and, and I think every pastor should go ahead and say what he believes. But what, how you define who gets on your eldership, for example, who, who gets a teaching office in your church, I'm inclined to not draw that too narrowly. Um, but I, I, could, I could be wrong about that. You know, I, 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 uh, I'm 63 years old, and I've never preached through Genesis yet. And I, I'd, I'd like to. <laughs> I'm going to finish John. And then maybe the next thing I'll turn to, if, if the elders let me stay around that long, would be, would be Genesis. I, I really think it would, we, need to, we need to give our people help in this. Again, the point being is science, whatever science says it is. Now again, I love John Piper. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying these aren't Christian people. I believe they are. But I think that they've become culturally relevant. They've followed the platform because if you go against that, people aren't going to like you. That's why I have no friends. <laughs> okay, you go against it, people aren't going to like you. Okay, another one here, Andy Stanley. Again, a godly man, and I believe what he's saying, he has good intentions even, insane. But again, has tried to become culturally relevant. The foundation of our faith is not the scripture. 
The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happened in history. And the issue is always, who is Jesus? If we really believe that God is the creator of the universe, that all time, space, and matter, all time, space, and matter were created by God, and we take seriously what science has told us, that it all began with a singularity. That's what it's referred to. Right before, there's not such thing as before the Big Bang, because before is time and time began. So if we go to the singularity that was the Big Bang, that unfurled the universe, that continues to expand, religion and science conflict. At the end of the day, if you are an honest person, science must win. Here's the deal. Your Sunday school, God, probably could not be reconciled with science. I understand that. Your Sunday school God, the God that your church left you with as a child or even a middle school or a high school and it never went beyond that, that God probably cannot be reconciled with science. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is problematic for adults. And here's why. Because the implication is the Bible is the reason we believe. The Bible is the reason we believe into college with a, the Bible says it, that settles it. And then a professor got up and says, well, there's problems with the Bible. And they begin to talk about things that are, maybe aren't true or historically you know, verifiable. And your smart son or daughter that you spent thousands and thousands of dollars to get them educated come home and suddenly they're smarter than you. And they already thought they were smarter than you, but now they have a professor saying, hey, you really are smarter than your Sunday school teacher and your parents. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, here's the problem. It is all or nothing conversation. You know, somebody with all this information, you know, comes to the, to the apostle Peter. Let's say the apostle Peter and says, Peter, hey, before you get all geeked out on this following Jesus thing, do you realize there's no evidence for a worldwide flood? Hey, Peter, before you get all crazy about the Jesus thing, do you know that there's no archaeological evidence for the Exodus? Hey, G hey Paul, but before you get all going, Peter, before you go crazy about the Jesus thing, you realize that okay, the earth is more than 6,000 years old, that whole genealogy in Genesis. Peter would have looked at you like, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, but, but I followed a man for three years who spoke like no other man spoke. He was arrested and crucified, and we thought, game over. Because he said too much to be a good teacher. He claimed too much about himself to be a good teacher. Game over. We're all in hiding. A bunch of women come babbling that the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. I looked into an empty tomb. And do you know what I concluded? Somebody stole the body. And a few days later, I had breakfast with my risen friend on the beach. So I'm not sure about 6,000 year old earth. I'm not sure about archeological evidence. I'm not sure about all that. The reason I'm following Jesus is because I saw him die and I saw him alive. And I went into the streets of Jerusalem to say, God has done something among us. For the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not a book. Mm -hmm. real the like evangelical pope and you really had the authority to say this is how it's going to be uh that within so american evangelical yeah, christianity uh what would you do i would ask preachers and pastors and student pastors in their communication to get the spotlight off the bible and back on the resurrection what he's trying to say is this is you see all of these other things don't matter as long as you believe that jesus rose from the dead that's what we need to be preaching, the resurrection. Leave all this science stuff and whatnot behind. Because as he said, you know, if, if the Bible and science disagree, we must side with science. You see, I think he has a platform for the people, not a platform for God. And by the way, I disagree with him wholeheartedly. There is evidence of the Exodus. There is evidence of a worldwide flood. There is evidence. Okay? Uh, so I disagree wholeheartedly with that. I agree that he has good intentions. And he wants people to, he, he wants people to, to come to know Jesus. Because he feels that the science is leading them astray. So let's abandon science. Okay, let them have the science that's saying millions of years. Well, it's not even science that's saying it, it's interpretations of science. But look what the scriptures say. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one would rise from the dead. If you can't believe Genesis, if you can't believe God, 
apart from your scientific understanding here today, if you can't trust his word, you're not going to even believe in the resurrection. And that's what we see happening all the time. People aren't going to accept that Jesus is who he says he is if they can't accept that he is their creator to begin with. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, that's our foundation. Jesus Christ, the word of God. That's the foundation of our faith. Not the resurrection. Oh, I believe in the resurrection. But it's the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the foundation. Science doesn't disagree with the Bible. But he's saying, you know, people are going, hey, Peter, all of these things, you know, you, you can't believe that. No, I can. You know why? Because of the prophetic Word that has been confirmed. How scripture interprets scripture. And so again, I'm just going to leave you with this challenge. Which priest are you? We've got those who have the platform for the people. Jan Hatmaker, Nicole Nordman accepting you know, homosexual marriage. We have you know, the middle of the line kind of things. Uh, these aren't fathers. They are guides. Guides in Christ, but they're not fathers. Which priest are you? What's your platform? Which king are you going to follow? That's what I want to leave you with because I'll tell you something. As for me and my house, I will follow the Lord. I will follow His word. And I will try and do it in love. Like I said, this isn't against homosexuals, it's against homosexuality. It's not against abortionists, it's against abortion. It's not against Muslims, it's against Islam. It's standing up for truth. It's not against culture and people, it's, a, it's for Jesus. Jesus loved me enough to die on that cross to take away my sins and I want nothing more than to live my life out for Him. I pray that that's what you would love to do as well. That we wouldn't worry about the culture and the platform of the world. And what people worry, or worry about what people think of us because of standing on that word. But that we would just be a faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who has given us His Word, that we might know truth. We're in a world that's telling us there is no truth and things are black and are not black and white, but it's gray and all sorts of shades of gray. But Father, you tell us truth. While there may be ways we might understand some of these things differently, we know the truth of Jesus Christ, that He has paid for our sins. There's nothing that we can do to earn or deserve that grace and forgiveness. Father, who are we that you are mindful of us? You've created the heavens and the earth and yet here we are, just this little speck and yet we are the focus of your eye. That you came to this little speck to die for us rising from the dead. God, may that truth move and spurn us to serve you in joy. And while the world may hate us, as you promised they would, that your love will never fail. And for that, we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.